1823, a group of men gathered together as an informal militia unit to defend their homes against raids by Amerindian tribes. These ten men had been raised and paid for by Stephen F. Austin to augment the almost non-existent Mexican militia and protect new American families settling in this place called Texas. While there is debate out there about this group, popular lore says that they were the first to be known as Texas Rangers. Other groups that may have been called Texas Rangers were disbanded, enlisted, and funded off and on in the coming decades. And these would fight for Texas independence in 1836, for the Republic of Texas over the next decade, and would serve in the Mexican-American War starting in 1846. In that last conflict, they would earn the nickname Los Diablos Tejanos, or the Texas Devils, from their Mexican adversaries, both for their prowess in battle and for some pretty unsavory tactics against civilians. As that war ended, and through both the antebellum period and the Civil War, more men, again dubbed Texas Rangers by lore, would be alternatively disbanded and funded. But in 1873, the unit known as the Texas Rangers was officially recommissioned by the governor and state legislature. And this is where these men would become legends of the Old West, fighting off outlaws and Amerindians alike in the popular imagination. Obviously, there's a lot more than just the legends, and the Rangers weren't always the paragons of Western justice and virtue that they're made out to be. But it's the legend of the Rangers that's important, as their reputation for dogged determination and getting the job done turned them into icons. And it also spawned a Chuck Norris-led TV show in the 90s, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that when Arizona went looking for a solution for its problems of rampant rustling, train robberies, and other forms of lawlessness at the turn of the 20th century, its gaze naturally turned eastward. And it's from the legend of the Texas Rangers that the territory would take its inspiration. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 147, The Arizona Rangers, Part 1, 14 Stout Men. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, exploring all the fascinating ways Arizona was tied to the Spanish-American War. That has quickly become one of my favorite subjects, mainly because I originally thought it would be maybe a fourth of an episode's worth of material, but I was surprised about just how involved Arizonans actually were in that conflict. Men from the territory were perfect for the Rough Riders because the unit was originally organized because the country wanted cowboy types who could ride and shoot. And that's going to carry over into today's episode as we talk about a similar unit that was organized to solve unique Arizona problems. But we need to actually start our story in Texas, or rather with people from Texas. As you might remember from our episodes on the OK Corral, the Pleasant Valley War, and the livestock situation, Arizona's vast rangeland attracted a lot of Texas cowboys in the 1880s, as the Apache were being ground down by the U.S. Army. 
these Texan transplants were leaving the Lone Star State for a variety of reasons. The Arizona rangeland was good. West Texas was experiencing several droughts in the 1880s, and also because their former home had become too darn civilized. As one historian puts it, countless desperados, quote, preferred a more agreeable climate free of allergies such as Texas Rangers and uncompromising town marshals, end quote. Now, this movement wasn't all bad. The Texans brought with them double-cinch saddles and other methods of cow-punching that people in Arizona were quick to adopt. Historian Wilsey Barnes straight up admits that the Texans were just better at the gig than they all were, so they learned quickly from the new arrivals. However, those Texans who were allergic to town marshals and Texas rangers started adding to Arizona's problems. As we explored in our series on the Pleasant Valley War, cattle rustling was so rampant in some parts of the territory, it was almost a fact of life. This was particularly true in Arizona's southeast corner, where Cochise County was still a pretty wild place. And a lot of that rustling had to do with the international border, which up until the end of the 19th century was extremely porous and not well defined, leading to conditions that I think I want to talk about in a couple weeks. Those conditions weren't all bad, but there was a fair amount of all sorts of illegal shenanigans happening. Thomas H. Reinings, who you will hear a lot more about next week, said about the town of Douglas, quote, Cattle thieves, murderers, all the worst hombres of the United States and Mexico made their headquarters there, end quote. The rustlers would hide themselves up in the hills and then when the time was right, sally forth, round up a herd of cows, and retreat before a posse could be called. It got so bad that the smaller cattle outfits just couldn't stay in business. Only the larger outfits, like John Slaughter's San Bernardino Ranch, had enough hands that they could protect their animals. Added on top of this rustling problem was the issue of train robberies. We covered some of these daring heists back in episode 130 when talking about the banditos, desperados, and lawless rabble that called Arizona home, and there will eventually be a callback to one heist in particular, so stay tuned for that. The high-profile nature of that type of crime meant that it grabbed a lot of people's attention, including outside the territory. And I've mentioned this off and on whenever we had high-profile crimes— this is very bad PR for Arizona, which was trying to show the rest of the country that they were ready to become a state. But when the rest of the states think that you are just this desolate little place where lawlessness is running rampant, yeah, you're not getting a seat at the big boys' table. To face this problem, the 21st legislature in 1901 turned to an old solution, the formation of a group called the Arizona Rangers. This is by no means a new idea. Several times over the course of our time together, I've mentioned how officials were always suggesting raising a force of men to fight lawlessness or Apache or whomever was the enemy of the week. And because of a lack of imagination or because the Texas Rangers had done their job so well, those officials always wanted to call their group the Arizona Rangers. But our hats go off to Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy and the 21st Territorial Legislature for actually being the ones that took the idea from concept to a group of fighting men. The natural question now is, who were the men that would become the Arizona Rangers? And I want to start answering that question by pointing out that the legislature and Governor Murphy recognized the problem, 
but they really didn't want to invest too much into the solution. The original Rangers consisted of only 14 men, a captain, a sergeant, and 12 privates. That's not a lot of manpower to stop all the wrestling and train robbery in the entire territory. The good news is, they picked one heck of a captain. His name was Burton C. Mossman, an experienced cattleman from northern Arizona. He had been born in Illinois in 1867. His family had moved to Missouri and then New Mexico, and by 1884, he was in Arizona and had started working in the cattle industry. And when I call him an experienced cattleman, I mean that he was actually a foreman for the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, or as we have come to know and love them, the Hash Knife. By the way, if you need a refresher on what the Hash Knife was, please go back and re-listen to both episode 119 and our series on the Pleasant Valley War. The crazy thing is that when Mossman became the foreman for the Hash Knife in 1887, he was only 20 years old. From the former episodes I already named, you'll recall that the Hash Knife had its fair share of issues with rustling, especially from some of the more unscrupulous cowboys that it itself employed. During the Pleasant Valley War series in episode 124, we talked about how the Hash Knife basically had to issue an ultimatum to its own employees to stop stealing cattle, either from other ranchers or from the Hash Knife itself, or they could find themselves a new gig. Well, Mossman was the foreman who had to enforce that ultimatum, which gave him pretty good qualifications to tackle rustlers now. In fact, one source claims that he was the one that had personally fired 52 of 84 cowboys suspected of being or helping rustlers. In addition to his ranching work, Mossman would be involved in several business endeavors during his years in Arizona, including operating a stagecoach line, building an opera house in Winslow, and building a store in Douglas. By 1897, he was the superintendent of the Hash Knife operation, and the next year he was elected sheriff of Navajo County. So, yeah, there's no question, this guy definitely has the chops to lead the Rangers. And when asked how he planned to carry out this Herculean task, Mossman shows us what the movies call True Grit, in a quote that is a little long, but too good to pass up. He said, quote, if they come along easy, everything will be all right. If they don't, well, I just guess we can make pretty short work of them. I know most of them and the life those fellows are leading in the mesquite scrub and landholes to keep out of reach of the law is a dog's life. They ought to thank me for giving them a chance to come in and take their medicine. Some of them will object, of course. They'll probably try a little gum play as a bluff, but I shoot fairly well myself and the boys who back me up are handy enough with their guns. Any rustler who wants to yank on the rope and kick up trouble will find he's up against it. End quote. Which is just about the most cowboy thing I've ever had the pleasure to quote on this podcast. As originally formed under Mossman, the Arizona Rangers were a non-political group. The only qualifications to get in were how well someone rode, how well they roped, and how well they could shoot. Some of the men selected as rangers even had criminal records because they were familiar with the types of men they were to bring down. I think early state historian James H. McClintock says it best when he wrote, quote, 
In some cases, men were enlisted whose previous records would not have entitled them to distinguished consideration in a Sunday school. End quote. Mossman also made sure the enlisted men came from every part of the territory, so that no matter where their work took them, at least one man would have first-hand knowledge of the trails, watering holes, topography, and people there. They also operated almost like plain-clothed policemen do in our modern day. Though they had badges issued to them, most of the time they had these covered up, and rode up dressed like any other cowboy. One ranger recalled that the unit had no uniforms, no dress parades, no flags, and no saluting. So it's only after they closed in on someone that the bandito in question would realize he was about to be nabbed by law enforcement. The rangers would make their original headquarters in Bisbee, where the active mining community and the proximity to the international border made smuggling common. Despite the claim of many rustlers that the rangers would turn up their toes by the next branding season, Mossman and his company set to work fighting against rustling and hunting down fugitives from both Arizona and New Mexico. Outlaws had long made use of the Blue River Wilderness area north of Clifton, but after Mossman and the rangers teamed up with the county sheriff and his posse to bring in some high-profile targets, it became a much less desirable place for scofflaws to hide. And during their first year of service, the rangers could point to 125 major arrests that either put men behind bars or shipped them back to the states they had fled from. Despite the fact that Mossman and his group were a bit trigger-happy and gunplay was constant, they only killed one man during that same year. They also only lost one ranger named Carlos Tafoya, who was gunned down when he, another ranger, and a group of cattlemen surprised some rustlers in the Black River area south of Springerville. The rustlers had been heading to Mexico with a herd of stolen horses when they were surprised in their camp. Tafoya and one of the cattlemen accompanying him were killed in the fight that ensued, but McClintock is sure to tell us that Tafoya's widow was granted a pension by the territory. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the rangers. They were accused of being heavy-handed with local law enforcement and also being excessively brutal during their arrests. Additionally, the citizens of Bisbee in particular took a dislike to them, mainly because they, like many of the men they hunted, would go into local saloons, get drunk, and start brawls, a lot of times with professional gamblers whom they accused of cheating. Mossman was quick to defend his men and their conduct, which only made the people of Bisbee also dislike him. In fact, after one such brawl, 50 citizens signed a petition and sent it to the governor to remove Mossman for what they deemed conduct unbecoming of an officer. They needn't had worried, however, because Mossman would soon be gone. The captain tendered his resignation from the force in the summer of 1902 for reasons that aren't quite clear, but it looks like Governor Murphy's successor decided that he wanted to appoint his own man as captain of the Rangers. But before he left office, Mossman added one more giant feather to his cap when he went after the Mexican murderer, Agustino Chacon. Chacon was a notorious outlaw who had built up something of a borderlands Robin Hood mythos around him, though unlike his noble English counterpart of legend, he was quite brutal. According to state historian Marshall Trimble, Chacon once killed a Morenci shopkeeper with an axe, and it also killed a deputy sheriff despite the man being under a flag of truce. 
He had been sentenced to be hanged, but he escaped jail after a lady friend had snuck in a hacksaw blade concealed in the spine of a Bible. Historian Jay Wagner says that Chacon had been convicted of the murder of an officer named Pablo Salcido on Christmas Day 1895, but 10 days before his scheduled execution, he dug out of his adobe jail and escaped into Mexico. I can't tell if Trimble and Wagner are relaying slightly different versions of the same event or not, but they both agree that before Chacon's eventual hanging, he told a Mexican official that he had killed 15 Americans and 37 Mexicans over the course of his life. So that's the man Mossman decided to bring to justice for his last hurrah. I have to say that if there is anyone in Arizona history who resembles a John Wayne character come to life, it's Burton Mossman. Well, he and Jim Roberts from episode 129. Now, there are two issues here that have to be overcome. The first you might have noticed is that Chacon had fled into Mexico, and I don't know if you know this, but that's a whole other country with its own laws and law enforcement and views on people from the United States invading their sovereignty. This isn't as big an obstacle as you might think, however, because the realities of the border had led law enforcement on each side to work closely with each other. A lot of this started during the Apache Wars, when the Amerindians would slip across this invisible line the white eyes and Mexicans valued so highly in order to throw off whichever the two were pursuing them. But even after the Apache had been rounded up, this kind of cooperation endured mainly because every two-bit crook had the same idea. Get into Mexico, and you were scot-free. However, unlike with the Apache, when the two countries had signed treaties agreeing to let parties pursuing raiding Amerindians cross the international boundary under certain conditions, what came afterward was less formal. Usually, local law enforcement, and in this case the Rangers, reached out to their Mexican counterparts, or vice versa, and came to an understanding. No fancy paperwork or lawyers, just neighbors needing to cut through the other's yard upon occasion. McClintock says that Mossman came to one of these understandings with a man named Colonel Emilio Kosterliski. Kosterliski is an interesting guy, and I'm kind of bummed that he's always just out of frame for our podcast. But long story short, Kosterliski was born in Russia and joined the Russian Navy as a teenager before deserting in Venezuela at the age of 18 and then making his way up into Mexico. Here he joined the Mexican army and was present for a lot of the back-and-forth chasing of the Apache across northern Mexico. In fact, I sort of neglected to mention him back in episode 144 as the guy who claimed to have killed the Apache kid in Mexico and the one who'd produced the stolen pocket watch to prove it. In 1885, Kosterliski was put in charge of the Hendemaria Fiscal, or basically the Customs-slash-Border Enforcement, by Mexican President Porfirio Diaz. You'll sometimes see that he was the head of the Rurales, or Rural Police, but that actually was a separate group of law enforcement working along the international border. Kosterliski might pop up in our story again a few times, as he will be fighting through the beginning of the Mexican Revolution, but if he doesn't, I wanted to at least give him a shout-out here. Also, apparently the guy spoke nine different languages, and in my book, that's always worth a mention. Okay, back to the actual story at hand. 
Mossman had struck his handshake agreement with Kosterliski to be able to chase criminals across the border, which he took advantage of here in his chase of Chacon. But being able to go down into Mexico was only the first obstacle to solve. The second was how to find Chacon. It turns out the answer is a deep cut from this very podcast. Back in episode 130, I introduced one Bert Albert, the town marshal for Cochise, who on September 11th, 1899, arranged to hold up the Southern and Pacific train while giving himself an alibi of sitting and playing cards in the back room of a saloon. His co-conspirator was a man named Billy Stiles, and it turns out that the pair were actually involved in a fair number of trans-border illegal shenanigans. Alvord was captured in 1900 after Stiles turned state's evidence on him for a failed train robbery. With the help of Stiles, Alvord would break out of the jail in Tombstone and head south of the border to live the life of a Mexican bandito. I'm not sure why Stiles broke Alvord out of jail after his testimony threw Alvord in there in the first place, but history is weird like that. Here's the thing, though. Alvord had actually worked with Chacon before and knew his hiding places. Somehow, Mossman was able to connect with Alvord and Stiles and convince them to help him bring Chacon in. It was a fairly simple sting operation. Mossman pretended to be a recent escapee from a Tucson jail who had fled across the border. There he met up with Alvord, Stiles, and Chacon, with the former two vouching for Mossman. The plan was for the four men to head up and strike a cattle operation near the town of Hereford. But Chacon got suspicious when Alvord straight up deserted the group by pretending that he was gonna uh, go off and find some water. Seeing that his quarry was on the verge of bolting, Mossman decided just to act. He drew his gun on Chacon and placed him under arrest. By the by, Alvord would bolt following Chacon's capture, but don't you worry because both he and Stiles will have further run-ins with the Rangers in the near future. Though I did already spoil that Alvord is going to die in Barbados in 1909, so don't expect any dramatic shootouts. Mossman would march Chacon back up to the border in handcuffs and with a rope around his neck. The engineer of the first train they came across must have been mighty puzzled at the sight. Styles on a horse, leading another horse with a handcuffed and roped Chacon, while Mossman, with his rifle in his arm, holding the end to Chacon's rope. The murderer would be handed over to the Graham County Sheriff, who took him up to Solomonville, which is where Chacon would finally have that appointment with the gallows in November 1902. According to Trimble, the murderer kept his spirits to the end, saying simply, Goodbye, all my friends as the noose was fitted around his neck. Now, as I said, this was a huge feather in the cap of Mossman, who pretty much went undercover with thieves to bring a thief and multiple murderer to justice. However, there were some complications. First off, Mossman's actual commission as captain of the Rangers expired four days before he actually took Chacon into custody, so already that's crossing a line. Second, and more important, is the fact that Chacon was a Mexican national. Letting Americans cross the border to chase and or capture fugitive Americans was one thing. 
but letting an American come into Mexico to arrest a Mexican citizen without the process of Mexican law was quite another. This stirred up a minor diplomatic incident, so Mossman did the only prudent thing. He took a vacation to New York, where he stayed until the whole incident had blown over. Now that his time in the Rangers was over, Mossman settled down in Roswell, New Mexico. Yes, that Roswell, New Mexico, where he went back into the cattle business, where he became quite successful. He would die on September 5th, 1956, at the ripe old age of 89. I've read that there is a Mossman Road on the south side of Tucson that is named in his honor. And I have to admit that Burton C. Mossman might be my newest favorite person I've learned about while doing this podcast. In fact, after wrapping up his year in office, and yes, it's only been a single year, I'm going to leave things here for this week. I apologize that this episode clocks in a bit shorter than most, but after falling down the Mossman rabbit hole, I found I didn't really have enough time to do the rest of the story justice in the time remaining. But join me next week for more border exploits as the Rangers are reorganized under two additional captains and continue their mission of hunting fugitives and rustlers. Unfortunately, they will also step right into the middle of the rapidly heating labor disputes of the early 1900s and eventually run afoul of the political powers that be, which will spell their end. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.